I'm John Fanning, and in this episode of the Brown Forum podcast, I'll be talking to Samuel Dennigan. Dennigan is a well-known name in the Irish food sector. The family business was begun in 1976, operating in the food services sector mainly. Forty years later, Samuel launched a new consumer brand in the frozen food sector, Strong Roots, a brand designed to capitalise on two critical trends in the food sector that we've already touched on in previous podcasts. The first is the increasing interest in health, nutrition and sustainability. And the second, which is a direct result of that, is the surge in sales of plant-based food. Great to have you on the podcast, Samuel. How did you come across these increased trends in the food business in the first place? Firstly, John, thanks for having me on. Um, it's great to be part of the, the Board Beer podcast. The trends found me. I didn't find the trends. I grew up in a vegetable uh, food business, born in North County, Dublin. And very quickly after college, I started working in the family business and all the different parts of it. And um, it was about completely immersing yourself into the the world of agriculture and agribusiness. Um, so having worked for so long with various different farmers and crops and understanding the supply chain, the trends and I naturally met each other when we were trying to develop a brand that we could try and add value to the consumer with. So I think, you know, my first instance of of, of plant-based foods was probably even after the, the establishment of, of Strong Roots, if I'm to, to be completely honest. We very fortunately emerged at the same time that the trend of veganism and vegetarianism was, you know, blending in with um, healthier lifestyle trend of, of plant-based consumption. So, you know, probably in, you know, late 2015, early 2016, was really when, you know, the macro trend of health and wellness aligned with plant-based globally. And, you know, right at the same time of that, social media was making the the connectivity of all the various different markets something that, you know, where, where trends and brands could emerge at the same time. So I think it was having had a 10-year career in my family business, learning about agriculture, it was really after that where you know, the categorization of plant-based food and the consumer insight about this type of consumption happened. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a lifelong discovery, to be honest. You started off with an extremely ambitious uh, program designed to effectively revolutionize the whole frozen food sector. How did that come about? Um, I've always been very ambitious. And, you know, growing up in a family business, you take great pride in work, you know, I had like learned my craft in San Denigan and Company for, you know, 10 years at the start of my career. And, you know, I had been fortunate enough to work alongside my, my dad and my uncle for that entire time as their right hand in various different parts of the business. That led me to, you know, various different markets, in particular, you know, Europe and, and North America um, for procurement purposes. But it also introduced me to a lot of you know, the agriculture business and the supermarket supply chain. So when when we realized what the opportunity was within not just plant-based food, but also the opportunity to reinvigorate the frozen food sector, we really looked at it initially as something that could be developed in Ireland and then rolled into the UK. I'd been working in the UK market for quite some time, trying to develop brands, trying to create supply chain and 
create conversations with the with the UK retailers because of the sheer scale and and mass of what they could bring to volume, and then obviously economies of scale. And we realised that looking at it on a European basis or even on a UK and Ireland basis was just too small, and we had you know, stepped onto something very early and the opportunity was actually global. So, you know, from the very get-go of the brand, we've had an ambition to create a global household brand, which we're still trying to achieve because of that timed opportunity um, that we stumbled upon, um, you know, uh, during that period of alignment between veganism and the emergence of plant-based trends. So we thought... You know, if, if someone's going to do it, why not us? Why can't we do it from Ireland? And um, we're still trying to do that today. But these were two huge ambitions. The first one is to revolutionise an entire sector of the market. And secondly, to go global from the very beginning. Did you think there was a fundamental weakness in the existing structure of the frozen food market? Yeah, I, I didn't think it. Uh, we were able to see it. And so, you know, during a project, um, in the family business associated with the Green Giant Fresh brand, we had done a lot of research into you know um, various different brands trading in close to fresh produce space. So you know within Ireland, you know there's there's very few iconic brands of fresh produce. It's mostly a private label market. So the research that we had to undertake was against frozen brands. You know McCain, Bird's Eye, uh, Green Isle at the time. What that led us to was an illustration of a huge lack of innovation for, you know, 20 years, you know, packaging changes, but without really any um, advancement in the offering that was there, changing price points, changing of merchandising strategy, um, you know, use of advertising, but the actual products hadn't changed at all. You had potato and you had, you know, uh, the standard two veg that, Everyone was cooking on their plate beside an animal protein for a long time. Um, so the opportunity was was to just do something a little bit different associated with the food service trends that had emerged in the market. You know, I think food service and restaurants as a result of the development that chefs and um, that sector does on a constant basis because of their passion and interest in uh, food gets there quicker. And... I knew how to convert a food service offering into a retail offering because that was the job uh, that I'd been doing for for 10 years. So really for me, it was just a case of joining the dots between, you know, potential opportunity, which at that time was sweet potato fries, to, um, to a mass consumer. But at the same time, you're experimenting or you have launched a range of very, very different types of plant-based food in your brand how do you source them or how do you what ideas do you get to put that sort of recipes that you have together we listen to the consumer and we ask them what they want and we listen to feedback about um, what's missing in the market and we also combine you know uh, fast emerging trends in fast casual dining and also fine dining into um, you know, a repository of ideas that we then go and ideate on for anywhere from six to, you know, six months to two years in some cases. And and ultimately understand as much as possible about the potential emergence of that trend 
before we start executing on a potential product. So for example, you know, I think that the, the graveyard of things that we didn't do is much bigger than the things that we did. And it's about trying to understand what not to do as opposed to what to do, because, you know, ideation is great and it's a really exciting part of the business, but there has to be a lot of robust focus to make sure that you're doing the thing that the consumer wants versus the thing that you're passionate about. And that's one of the most difficult parts of the job. It's, it's deciding what works for when. So we have, a, we have an internal filter, which essentially classifies products as too early, just on time or too late. And what we try and focus on are things that, you know, have emerged as a trend in the market at the right time and have mass consumer acceptance. Um, but we don't already we don't always get it right. You know, we've we've had a number of product failures, which are even more important than the product wins a lot of the time. What's the most successful mix of new type vegetable products that that you have that would have surprised somebody, let's say, five or six years ago? I think the emergence of cauliflower as an alternate carbohydrate has been a global phenomenon particularly in you know UK Ireland USA we see cauliflower as an inclusion in anything from pizza bases to mash products to replace potato to you know how we're using it which is which is as a an, as, you know a, an alternative starch light product in our cauliflower hash browns you know sweet potato for us was a massive success and when i was working in my family's business you know, 10 years ago, that was an emerging exotic fringe product, which is now a complete commodity. So these things can can literally change overnight. You know, the usage of things like kale, which, you know, was a difficult to cook item as a, as a traditional plated product in Ireland for, you know, decades before it became a California sensation. Um, but for us, um, I think things like Sweet potato and cauliflower in particular, um, beetroot has been a hugely successful product for us with the trend of emerging purple veg- vegetables with high antioxidants, which has been a global trend. And we still, I think, you know, we'd be one of the, the biggest sellers of beetroot as a result of the inclusion of our mixed root vegetable fries. And, you know, the, that taste profile that people just hadn't been open to consuming for such a long time. Um, has been something that's been pretty stable for the last uh, uh, three or four years for us. Interesting. How did you, I mean, what seems to me the most interesting point is that the, the insights you gain from, first of all, what chefs are doing and then combined with what people want in terms of healthier foods. And it's your, the, the way you can mesh those together seems to be one of the secrets of your success. You know, I think I think everybody feels that, you know, the secret to the success of, of product launches is, you know, an abundance of marketing. But I actually feel it's it's a lack of education. One of our central communication messages is is this idea of simple, real food. And if you're presenting the consumer with something that they don't have to understand, that is accessible, that's in a format that they've used before, that's an alternative, but it's something that you know, doesn't have a huge education associated with it. We just want to make it easier to uh, allow people to consume better food. And if you keep it simple, that makes your life a whole lot easier. Um, that's not saying that food food education isn't valuable. Um, you know, 
recipe content and usage and you know variation of preparation methods are a huge part of our, our marketing strategy. But if you start with something that's overcomplicated and not satiating enough for the consumer, you've got an uphill struggle from the start. Can you just go back a little bit and describe your initial foray into the Irish market about seven years ago? How, how did you go about that and what sort of penetration have you achieved to date? Um, we had a very traditional story of starting up. It was uh, two people, two vans, a docket book, and a huge amount of uh, uh, R&D that happened six months before we ever actually put a, put a product on a van, which is quite an unusual way of doing things. But I think um, having spent 10 years in the business and having had a couple of failed brand launches, I had earned my stripes and what not to do. So was able to fast track to exactly how we should do it. So we started uh, by an application to the Food Academy with Super Value and um, Board B Enterprise Ireland and um, ultimately were able to pitch to buyers before actually ever having a product ready, um, which was still in, in research and development. And we were accepted onto the program, we went through the program and ultimately we ended up pitching to uh, Super Value at the end in the kind of graduation ceremony. and were accepted to distribute into 20 stores in the Leinster region. Um, so the first conversation I had to have, you know, having been granted this success was, I'm sorry, you know, 20 stores isn't going to do. I need, I need at least 100. And, um, you know, I need access to them in order to, to, you know, create this volume product from the start. So having made my case to Ken O'Connor, uh, who's still in, in super value, we basically just went about producing the product, which we developed over the previous six months with the brand. And we we got on the road. And um, for all the advice that I give young entrepreneurs now, that's the first thing I say. It's, you know, get out into the stores, sell the product yourself, put it on the shelves if you need to, make sure that it's merchandised properly. And within about a four to six week period, we had 100 stores selling a significant amount of the product which meant that um, Super Value could put both their PR and marketing strength as well as their distribution strength behind the product. So within, I think, three months, we were selling an average of, you know, two, 250,000 worth of products a month um, because of the, you know, plan twice, do once structure that we had, we had access to. But the product was selling on the basis of the ingredients on the pack and the pack design. You didn't do any sampling within store, did you? We did lots of sampling and we still stand by that demo strategy uh, in all of the countries that we're in. Ireland's actually one of the best countries to be able to do product sampling in comparison to the UK, where hot sampling in particular just doesn't exist. And in the US, it's incredibly expensive to do. So Ireland's one of those unique markets where we were able to engage with our consumers straight away and you're getting live feedback. So you're essentially in beta development mode, getting live feedback about, you know, that that early stage feedback was all about, I don't like this ingredient or we prefer that it wasn't in a plastic pack or the bag is too small or the price is too high and you're just learning constantly. So you're getting household penetration through direct access to consumers, but you're also getting market research at the same time. So it's completely invaluable. And what I would say is do it yourself. 
don't hire someone to do it. Do it yourself because um, people want to see you and, and, and you need to talk to them. And was that experience in the Irish market invaluable in entering the British market? Because you already had a fair idea about consumer response. Not just the UK, but also the US. Like we do, we have a different model to uh, native brands of the UK and the US because of our successes in Ireland. And we put much more weighted importance on things like sampling and in-store merchandising because that's how we built the business. And, you know, that would be seen in those two markets as quite an old school approach versus pumping money into digital advertising or spending a huge amount of money on promotion. But the reality is, is that if you're trying to create a premium brand that doesn't drift into commodity immediately, you've got to not promote. You've got to establish a premium value for the products that you're selling because ultimately it just um, is a race to the bottom if you're cutting margin that you can't then reinvest in the business. And as a result of that strategy in the first couple of years of business, we were you know, running a profitable entity um, that we could then reinvest to grow in other markets, um, which is also hugely valuable. I think um, the departure from um, people trying to create profitable businesses is actually quite um, unfortunate because uh, the focus is on building the top line as opposed to realizing what's possible at the bottom line. And what a lot of you know young food entrepreneurs don't realize is that focusing on paying themselves is one thing, which is usually quite difficult at the start. But being realistic about launching a product means that it ultimately has to be able to make money. And I think that's why most, this seems quite obvious, but I think that's it's why most um, brands fail early because the business planning around the future viability hasn't been done. And just go back to the UK market for a minute. Are you saying you weren't able to do any sampling there in the way that you were in the Irish supermarkets? We could within the independent groups. Yeah. So a really, really important partner for us early on was the UK arm of Whole Foods Market, particularly within the Kensington High Street store where sampling is possible and where they really wrap their arms around um, young brands where they see the alignment to trends. So, you know, every, you know, Saturday, Sunday uh, that we could, we were there speaking to, you know, what we now know as influencers and influential purchases that were, you know, ultimately creating great word of mouth for us. Since the pandemic, that industry of sampling has pretty much been wiped out and it's starting to emerge back now but the consumer has very tentatively responded to that and i think you know what the pandemic has brought to food sampling is you know that kind of barrier that wasn't there before yeah so people are nervous because of all the health scares and that's unlikely to go away but you still are able to talk to people and particularly those people who are likely to become influencers within the wider market yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the big um, areas of focus for us is is on community management. Um, we have an incredibly engaged community of people who are super fans. And, you know, a large part of our distributed media content is around user generated content. So people who go out of their way to make our products look beautiful on their plates at home because um, they, they serve such a great purpose for them. And that word of mouth and 
usage is so invaluable. And how do you encourage or grow that community, Samuel? In the early days, we had uh, established what we called the Strong Squad, which was a, a hashtag uh, in order to link all these stories together. Competitions, vouchers, coupons, money off, you know, special unique deals to people who were championing the brand. As you get bigger, those things are more complicated. Um, and especially when you're running global brands centrally as opposed to something that was local to Ireland. Um, but the, the strategy is still largely the same. You know, it's looking after the people who look after your brand for you. And anyone who wants to be an advocate for us usually reaches out in private messaging across social media to see, can we take the relationship further? So, you know, can we become a brand ambassador or can we have an amount of stock in replacement for content? So slightly different than just good faith at the start, but we still get a huge amount of new discoverers of the brand. Like one of the most famous interactions we've had so far is with the artist uh, Lizzo in the US who put um, our cauliflower hash browns uh, in one of her recipes out to mi literally millions of viewers. And that's completely invaluable and at no cost. So build good products and then get good reaction because of, of good sentiment. But you need a little bit of seeding at the beginning. And that's really, that seems to me the secret of how, how the brand created its own momentum. It, it, it worked because we were very active on the ground and um, I came through the fresh produce industry, which uh, I was told every day um, that selling didn't happen behind the desk. So, um, you know, being deskless and mobile and on the road is uh, definitely how we, we and everyone who has worked for us makes it happen. I'd just like to go through one or two technical branding issues, Samuel. Uh, the name Strong Roots is very, very descriptive, but also evocative. Where did that come from? So um, at the time, um, there was this phrase, which was uh, strong is the new skinny. And there was a huge um, element of uh, new age female empowerment happening at the time. And our, our main consumer we call Sophie, um, which is a uh, you know, young professional female demographic that we try and tailor all of our, our communications and products to. And, and her diet and her lifestyle was changing dramatically at that stage. Emergence of paleo diets and keto diets and um, fit fam, which was a huge element of uh, how we spread our um, products into that kind of gym community at that stage. Um, CrossFit and various other uh, um, organizations was just, you know, uh, I won't say passing fad, but a huge focus for uh, people who were trying to improve mental and physical health. And right at the same time, we were emerging as, you know, a brand that, that, that fit into that. And, you know, the timing around sweet potato in particular, which is, you know, what got us our strike and is still a huge part of our business, was really important. It was seen as a, um, a replacement for starchy carbohydrates. And ultimately, you know, that's what set us apart from uh, the other brands that were in the market. We looked differently to everything else. 
we were selling something that was different to everyone else. And therefore, we were able to capture the whole market of that within a very, very short space of time, driven by a community who was looking for that for a long, a long period. And it's really that sort of user-generated content that constitutes most of your marketing communication rather than any paid-for communication in either traditional media or even social media platforms. For sure. Digital word of mouth is one of the most important uh, parts of the business. Um, Early early on, we had influencers like uh, Irish influencers like Siobhan O'Hagan and um, James Kavanagh and you know, people who have become, you know, very famous in Ireland in their own right over the last 10 years. And people were trusting their judgment on new trend and also on the basis of, you know, background of the brand. You know, we engaged with them to explain, you know, we're an Irish company and we're operating out of Dublin. And, you know, this is positive for so many reasons and feeding them nutrition information, etc. Um, in order for them to get, you know, comfortable and become brand advocates without uh, having formal yeah. formal association. In, in the UK and in the American market, how important, if at all, is your Irish strong roots? Yeah, look, our, our roots are very important. Um, I think we have, we have never been able to uh, yet manufacture a product in Ireland and we don't pretend to in any way. I think a lot of people over the years have made the assumption about the uh, procurement and origin of our products, but ultimately because of the lack of frozen food industry in this, uh, in infrastructure in Ireland, in particular around um, horticulture, it just hasn't been possible. But um, what is very important is our ethos and personality of Irishness in the markets that we exist. So you know, we have this personality and tone uh, characteristic that we call a simple, bold and real. And we we try and put our boldness out in our marketing communications as much as possible. And it actually drives the type of marketing that we do in that kind of mischievous way in various different markets. No, that, that puts you in line with some other very, very notable Irish brands like uh, Ryanair, Paddy Power. They're all doing the same thing in, in some way. What other global food brands, and I'm including you as a global food brand now, what other global food brands do you admire, Samuel? One of the, one of the kind of marquee brands that I've always you know, looked at trying to emulate uh, has been a brand like um, uh, Ben & Jerry's. Um, they've managed to build a global landscape of products that is about um, joy and fun. And they've also been able to become advocates for really serious subjects like sustainability and diversity and inclusion and race without really taking themselves too seriously. And I think, you know, there is a narrative and a place for brands to be involved in serious discussions, but in a way that enables their consumers to engage without taking themselves too seriously. And that's something that we've tried to build in Strong Roots um, in particular. You know, uh, global reach, consistency, uh, quality of products, and um, availability for a mass audience is very important. We don't want to build something that isn't accessible at various different perceptions of value. 
So our range, you know, while it's premium, is still available within a price point that most people can can afford. Um, and that accessibility is, is really important. So I think, you know, Ben and & Jerry's and the relationship between Ben and & Jerry's and Unilever and, and the style and the way that they've run their business has been a, a good good beacon for us. They're, they're, they're known in particular for social activism and for various causes. Are you involved in any of those type of causes we have we have started to be um so one of the things that we're very passionate about as a company is is food insecurity um food insecurity in particular in you know major metropolitan areas so one of the things that we've been focused on for the last couple of years is our initiative within london which is uh, called make veg poverty history and it was a um initiative that was set up after the realization that one in four Britons in a lower social demographic uh, don't have access to fresh vegetables, fresh or frozen vegetables, and ultimately aren't getting the nutrition and fiber that comes from those in replacement of, you know, unhealthy fast food. So what we've done is we've linked up with a number of organizations. One in particular is called Banquet, who try and connect food banks with retail waste or potential retail waste right to join the dots between what people need rather than just offloading products that that the retailers don't need and we set up a um the first ever veggie food bank in hackney in uh, in 2021 um which served uh, thousands of meals to people over a very short space of time and then ultimately provided uh, freezers and products to about, um, I think it's 40 uh, food banks around the country in the UK. And the objective of that initiative is to bring it globally to other cities that we operate in. Yeah. Um, because food, food insecurity um, shouldn't be an issue in, um, you know, first world countries and cities. But it still is in many cases. Are there any Irish food companies that you particularly admire? Yeah, I think... Um, one of my my earliest mentors was uh, Ray Coyle, and um, Ray has built multiple snacking brands across um, the industry within Ireland over the span of his career with humor and comedy and that boldness that we try and recreate within within the business. You know, the invention of a theme park out of a food brand is something that I think most founders can only dream of. Um, but to do it with um, incredible personality and zest for life um, is is the part that I think all founders want to achieve. So, you know, brands like Tato and Ungi Dory and, you know, Perry before that and the conversations that they bring up in, particularly in the Irish market, where everyone has a nostalgic association to one packet of crisps or another, you know, whether they're, you know, nutritionally healthy or not is irrelevant if it's bringing so much joy and association to, to, to brands like that. You know, one of the important things about the Tato brand was the association to Ray and his personality. And it's just been a devastating loss uh, to hear of, of, of his recent passing and, you know, wishes his family and and everyone close to him uh, the best and uh, that the food industry has certainly lost a titan so if uh, 
if I could if we could ever deliver the amount of joy that a brand like that did to the to consumers, uh, I'd be pretty happy. That's a very interesting answer, Samuel. Um, one point which I haven't covered: the investment by McCain, which obviously is is a critical point in in your business. How did that come about? A good question. We we I think our goal uh, in in becoming a global brand had certain realities attached to it, which at some point meant we needed to raise enough money to be able to do it ourselves um, and vertically integrate agriculture and manufacturing and all of the things that it takes to, you know, build an iconic brand. The other opportunity was to, you know, create a close strategic alignment and partnership with a large CPG company that would be interested in, you know, having an arm's length relationship in perpetuity and letting, you know, the management team of Strong Roots do business in the way that we wanted to do business. Was aligned with the values, was aligned with our sustainability goals, and was aligned with the product types that, that we had. We started a, a funding round, our B series funding um, in early 2021. And during that process, which was mostly um, private equity uh, firms uh, in order to market the business at a specific valuation in order to raise money to go to the next stage of growth. During that process, I had contacted uh, McCain about potentially manufacturing product uh, for us about two or three years previously to that. Uh, When we moved into the UK market, my view was you know, we can either compete with these big companies or the big companies can help us grow. And ultimately everybody wins because you can't sell it twice. Um, Ultimately at that stage, you know, because of, you know, manufacturing capacity or, you know, potential uh, competitive constraints, um, the interest wasn't there. But uh, three years later during that funding round, um, completely by chance, we got a call from uh, Howard Snape, who's the president of McCain in the UK and Ireland. And, um, you know, it was that call. It was, um, you know, we really respect and admire what you've done. We think we're super aligned. How can we help you achieve your goals? You know, very quickly we realized that there was so much alignment that it was, you know, almost too good to be true. And um, set about trying to figure out what that relationship looks like. So McCain has um, invested in us as a minority partner. And... We now have access to global distribution, manufacturing, sales prowess, you know, uh, financial resources and everything that a, that a business who wants to become a global brand um, needs. But most importantly, understands that the way that we're doing it from a challenger perspective and a B Corp is just as important as what it could lead to in the future in terms of, um, you know, global market share. So, um, yeah, it was a, it was a, all the effort gone in, uh, get the notice of the people that you want and had a very fortunate conversation. Are you going to concentrate now on growing the American and UK markets or are you going to go further afield? Um, we've gone further afield for a while. Um, we're currently available in about 15 countries. Our home markets are um, uh, Ireland, UK, US. And our investment uh, is likely going to focus on UK and US as a result of 
the similarity of those markets, but also the opportunity in those markets and, and the amount of runway that's still there. Um, we have just launched in Australia, uh, France, Netherlands, uh, soon to be Germany, um, Canada, hopefully later this year. The goal is to be available for purchase for 10% of the global population uh, by the end of 2025, which means that we need to be able to reach approximately 800 million people um, in order to um, achieve that goal, which means that with the current territories that we have, we have to go wider. So we focused on regional distribution development of where we can achieve those numbers but also where the products make sense. You know, um, there are certain cultures and countries that just are not interested in the products that we sell. So um, they mainly appeal to mostly Western cultures and, and eating habits. But we have um, had a lot of success in, in, in certain export markets in, in the Middle East and Asia as well. So um, I think we will continue to grow, but our, 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 our focus is is definitely on the US and the UK. Could you just tell us a little bit about the the share you have in some markets and any financial information you could share with us? Yeah, so of that of that global expansion plan, um, you know, currently our objectives within the next couple of years is to to reach a you know gross sales target of a hundred million, and you know we've had that as a key metric in the business for since a pretty early stage. Um, it's important because it creates ambition and scale within the company. I think in the early years when we set that type of a target, I don't think anyone believed it was true, but the closer that it gets, um, it was the right thing to do. Because if you if you want to have a small business, and one of the things that comes up regularly in the mentorship sessions is about this idea of, well, what do you want? Um, do you want something that can um, support yourself and your family? Do you want to build a global brand? Do you want that to be, um, you know, contributing to society? Or what is it actually you're trying to achieve? And a lot of people haven't asked themselves that question. When we asked the question, we decided we needed to be and wanted to be a global brand. And the metric of 100 million in sales felt appropriate to be able to serve all the markets that we're in. And the way that that will split out roughly is ultimately that currently the UK makes up about 50% of our business. Um, with uh, Ireland, uh, US and the rest of the world being being the other 50%. Um, but the objective for us over the next couple of years is that uh, America will drastically take over those other regions just the basis on the basis of its size. And, you know, we'll probably form 50% of the business itself within a relatively short space of time. The amount of distribution across, you know, uh, mainstay distribution of 30,000 stores just dwarfs most of the regions that we operate in and therefore has the biggest potential. And could I just ask you, what advice would you give to Irish companies who are interested in entering the US market? Yeah, it's a a question that I get asked quite a lot, John. Um, The reality is, is that there is a, you know, particularly in retail, which I can only speak to um, um, as as as, as my knowledge base, there is a certain amount of um, distribution and supply chain model that you have to fit in with. Um, the first question that I always ask about for Irish brands who are looking towards the US is, um, ha- have you got a big pot of money? Um, because it's an incredibly expensive place to do business. 
uh, things like slotting fees and broker fees and agent fees and everything that their middleman business culture has developed over uh, over the decades is incredibly expensive. And I think a lot of uh, early stage uh, exporters to the US believe that they can circumvent the system um, in order to get cut through. Um, the reality is in the market is that if you don't play by their rules, you get put into a, a bucket of uh, suppliers who essentially is is not making money for the, the middle system. It's changing in that the brokers and the distributors are becoming less prevalent and there are kind of direct routes to market, particularly with DTC, which is, is where most of the US challenger brands emerge. But what I would say is, is that in order to get less wastage on your investment, it's easier to fund the existing business model and then try and change it after the fact. So for example, you know, you have to think of, of the US as a continent and not a country. It's, it's 50 states um, with 50 different laws and it costs more to truck product from the east to the west coast than it does to ship product from Europe to the US. And when you think about that, that magnitude and size of the market, it puts in perspective how expensive it can be. Warehousing, storage, transport are all hugely incremental, 2 and 3x in comparison to, to, to you, uh, UK and, and Irish markets. While labour is less expensive, marketing is far, far more expensive because competition in, in share of voice is much, much stronger. So what I would say is you need capital. You need to um, follow the, 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 the relevant business model. Um, and then if the, if the investment is at a comfortable amount for you, progress and, and definitely plan twice and do once because I think, you know, we've been lucky in that we have three years under our belt now. Things are moving in the right direction, but it's going to take another 10 years to establish the brand as a household name in the US just based on its sheer size. Just to give you an insight in terms of numbers, you know, our business in the US is trading approximately at um, a run rate of about uh, $8 million at the moment. And $8 million in the US uh, is associated with about a 0.3% household penetration. So a drop in the ocean, uh, in short. So it, it, it takes time. Thank you very much, Samuel. It's been an extraordinary story to listen to. And I suspect would be an inspiration to the entire Irish food sector. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Bordbia Brand Forum podcast. You can find out more about the show and the Brand Forum on the Bordbia website. Don't forget to subscribe or follow wherever you're listening now and you won't miss any of the upcoming episodes. See you next time.